Our Advent sermon series, like uh, Sergio was saying at the top of the service, is focused on the text of Isaiah 9-6 and the names of Jesus that we find there. And as I mentioned last week, we're going to be pausing at each title that describes the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas and take a better look at what God promises us with each of these titles. Last week, we focused on the wonderful or the wonder-filled Jesus. This week, we're going to look at the next part of that title, Counselor. Our, our wonderful, our wonder-filled counselor, Jesus. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. We're going to be reading, actually, the, the longer portion of the text. And if you're able, I want to invite you also to stand as we read from God's Word this morning. Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1. By His Spirit and in His Word, God speaks to us these words today, church family. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray that the Spirit of God would fill us with true hope this morning as we sit under his word together. Would you pray with me one more time? God of hope, this morning we, we pray out of your promise fulfilled as we celebrate how you made good on what you promised by becoming human. This morning we anticipate the Advent reminder of your first coming and we sit under your word expectantly, expecting to be refilled with hope. Because Lord, if we're honest, by this time in the year, many of us feel like our hope has come dangerously close to empty. For some of us, we might have even lived all of 2021 on the fumes of hope. Some of us pull into the station completely empty. But today we declare that we know where to find hope. Advent assures, of the, uh, assures us of this. We, we come to you together expecting hope from you because you are the God of hope. You have revealed yourself as the God of hope who makes certain our hope. Change us, we pray, as we worship by participating in the preaching of your word this morning. Make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts into wonder-filled acts of worship. We pray all this in the name of the one who embodies our hope, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Wonderful counselor, Isaiah promises us. A, a, a wonder-filled counselor. This is the Savior the Lord promises to send his people. 
The king that the Lord promises to establish over his people. Not just any counselor, but a a wonderful counselor. And, And not just wonderful like the word that we use these days, like some vague, that's pretty great, but wonderful, like like wonder-filled, like, like awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, eye-popping, impossible, made possible, wonderful counselor. Not just counselor like the, uh, the, the summer camp counselor who was in charge of your cabin and just tried to make sure that you made it out of camp alive, but counselor like someone who guides, who, who directs, who discerns, who, who, who cuts through the smoke and sees the fires that sin lights in our hearts and offers us a way out. Counselor like the one who, who gives wise counsel, except unlike every other counselor, this counselor is, is wonder-filled, is, is supernatural, is, is not of this world. A counselor who entered this world to do more than just show up, but to begin the process of restoration. Theologian Howard Thurman expresses this this restoration theme when he paints the calendar with hope that that lives past December in this poem that he wrote, The Work of Christmas. And it goes like this. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. The hope of Christmas is a wonderful counselor who seeks and saves the lost. Not not just a counselor who came, but a counselor who knows how to heal what is broken and provide for his people what they need, who brings freedom and wholeness to individuals and communities and the world, whose, whose presence and work proclaim the kingdom of God in word and in deed, spreading the peace of a different kind of kingdom, and an otherworldly kingdom, a kingdom of light in the middle of a kingdom of darkness. What we celebrate as we remember the incarnation is that God came to fix what sin broke, to restore what sin took, to free the slaves that sin made, to, to, to resurrect the dead that sin killed. Because he is the wonderful counselor who both properly diagnoses our sin sickness and treats our sin sickness with the only kind of healing that will work. This morning, as we step into the hope that Christmas brings with a a, a wonderful counselor who meets us in our deepest needs and, and repairs our deepest brokenness, we actually need to see that need and that brokenness before we can truly grasp his saving work. In order to understand how brightly hope shines at Christmas, we have to see how dark the the night actually is. Glow sticks always look better in the dark. Fireworks only look good at night. And the stars only shine bright away from the intrusive lights of the city. And in a world that offers us every kind of, of deficient and disappointing hope, we see the bright hope of Christmas best when we realize just how dark our world without Christ really is. And so today what we're going to do is contrast the darkness of our sin sickness with the bright light of the wonderful counselor who came. The wonderful counselor who has saved us and is is, is making us whole again. And in order to do that, we need to understand the context, the the, the context of our passage, Isaiah 9, the context of of our sin before we can really understand why we even need a counselor, why we need a, a, a savior, what makes this counselor so wonderful. That context is summed up in the phrase, pursuing other counselors. 
That's where we're going to start this morning. And then after we see the ways that Israel, and and really all of humanity, pursues other counselors, we're going to turn and look to Jesus to see how Christmas flips the script and describes the wonderful counselor who actually pursued us. Other counselors versus the wonderful counselor. A contrast that will help us see the bright hope of salvation against the dark backdrop of sin and makes us sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's turn to the first half of our contrast, the the context of sin, how, how we pursue other counselors. Now, our passage this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, a a book that records the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah, who served God and his people across four different kings. The, the, The text that we're reading, the king that is ruling during the time of this text is a king named Ahaz. A a king whose legacy is littered with all kinds of idolatry and unfaithfulness. You can read that story in 2 Kings 16 or in 2 Chronicles 28, but I'll summarize it here for you this morning in, in one verse. 2 Kings 16.2 says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nothing else mattered. Not, not, not Ahaz's military achievements, his contributions to society, his resume. The way the Bible sums up his, his uh, kingdom is in one sentence of disobedience, a summary sentence that contains within it horrific acts like sacrificing his own child to a false god, encouraging and participating in the worship of false gods throughout the people of God, looking to other nations for military protection, and then desecrating the temple by stripping it of its silver and gold in order to pay for that military protection desecrating the temple even further by making a copy of an altar to a false god and putting it in God's temple, replacing God's altar, and then finalizing his desecration by remaking the temple in his own image and not just moving the furniture around but deciding what stays and what goes when God very clearly commanded what should be in his temple. All because he was deferring to a foreign king. All because he was pursuing another king to protect him and his people, to to empower him and his people, to to establish and name him and his people as important. And as the king goes, so the people go. But even as I summarize all this, it's not like Ahaz is actually cutting against the grain of the human heart. The the grain of the human heart has grown since Genesis 3, away from the true creator king and towards self away from what God says is best for us and towards what we think is best for us. Even when Israel got its first king, the reason why they even wanted a king was centered on what they thought was best. We want a king like all the other nations. We want someone to lead us like all the other nations have someone to lead them instead of establishing a king according to God's way of doing things. A king who would be faithful to God and be a leader who leads people toward God and not away from him. And then generations later, we get a king like Ahaz. Following the grain of a heart sick with sin, leading a people with hearts sick with sin, and the counsel he offers leads them further away from life. These are the kings that Israel wanted. These are the kings that we want. Someone to tell us who we are. Someone to provide safety and security. Someone to to make us feel powerful. These These are the gods we serve, the idols that bind us, the counselors we look to for wisdom and counsel and guidance and direction. The ones who diagnose our problem as the result of living inauthentic lives 
or prescribe safety and security in just being true to ourselves, or map out a treatment plan that supposedly increases our power by making sure that no one but us can tell us who we are. The darkness of sin has so confused us that, 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 that hope no longer looks like hope anymore. It looks like bondage because true hope is not found by looking within to find out who we are, but looking to the one who made us to tell us who we are. Sin has, has, has so broken and distorted us that the problem is that we think that anyone but us telling us who we are is slavery. And, and that's the worst part of the whole deception because the, the way out is actually sealed behind a wall of lies. True hope is found in the true freedom of our creator king showing us who we are, how we're broken, and fixing it. Otherwise, we end up like Ahaz and God's people in Isaiah 7, just two chapters before the hope in our passage in Isaiah 9. And I'll show you what I mean. Isaiah 7, that chapter starts like this. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Quick history lesson. By the time that Ahaz ruled, the people of God were actually uh, divided north and south. Right? They, they, they looked like, like North and South Korea. The, the, the North was called Israel and the South was called Judah. And Ahaz was the king of the South, the king of Judah. And now a foreign king is teaming up with the king of Israel, the North, to invade the South. There's all kinds of family issues there. We don't have time to go into it. But what's incredible is that the text says that they were not able to, to invade, to get in. And this, this, the rest of the text expands on why that happens. You see, verse 1 is a summary of what happens, and then the rest of the verses explains what actually happens. And verse 2 starts like this. The house of David, meaning Judah, the, the, the south, was told Aram, a foreign king, has allied itself with Ephraim. Again, foreign king working with this northern kingdom. Ephraim is another way of saying Israel, another way of saying that northern kingdom. The news of this power alliance, it reaches the throne of Ahaz, and when it does, the text says, The hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is the kind of situation that makes us scramble for safety and security, for, for power, for, for significance when we feel the threat of fear. In that scramble, we reach for whatever is closest. The question is, is God closest or do we reach for any number of idols that make us feel safe, powerful, significant? Who do we go to for help, for counsel, for clarity? The God who made everything and everyone are the idols who promise everything to everyone but can't deliver. The text continues, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, so they're uh, covered in fear, filled with fear, and the Lord actually speaks to his prophet Isaiah. He says, Go out, you and your son, share Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Go find the king and say to him, Be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. This is the grace of God in action, right? And Ahaz's moment of fear in the fear that has overtaken the people, despite all that they have done, all the false gods that they have worshipped, the children they have sacrificed, God still sends his comfort and encouragement to his image bearers and warns them, be careful, keep calm. Fear can make you do all kinds of crazy things. Fear can, can drive you to so many pseudo-saviors that, that promise you life but only deliver death. Be careful, keep calm. Don't be afraid and don't lose heart because of these threats, because these threats are only natural. Their power is limited. They are not ultimate. 
text describes what God continues to say in verse 7. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Listen, what you fear isn't going to happen. Why? The next couple of verses, God goes in verses 7 through 9 to trace the power structure of each of these military powerhouses back to a person, only human. But the power of God's people does not trace back to a mere human. It traces back to God himself. This is not natural power. This is supernatural power. And so God encourages Ahaz through Isaiah reminding him, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Stand firm in your faith to the one true God. Listen, you have not been living rightly, but you are not too far gone. Your idols have promised and they haven't delivered. The darkness seems to be closing in, but my light shines through because I always have the last word. The first brick that topples the pursuit of other counselors is the realization that these counselors, these idols, are incapable of providing what they promise. Their power is only natural. Their power traces back to human power, not to the source of power. And when we remember that, we can see that their darkness is not deep enough to keep the light out. Which is why the text continues, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Ask. I'm telling you that they cannot handle me. Believe me. In fact, I'll show you. Ask, and I will stoke the fires of your faith with a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. An answer that feels uh, super spiritual, but is actually super arrogant. After all, when God tells you to do something, the only right response is humble obedience. We don't respond by telling God that we know better than him how to relate to him. As if we are the ones who really know how to handle spiritual and religious realities. This is why Isaiah responds like this. Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? You're killing me, Ahaz. Are you serious right now? Like, it's not enough that you refuse to take counsel from me, from humans like me, prophets that are supposed to be pointing you back to God. Now you are refusing to take counsel from God himself? Bro, really? The prophecy continues because even then, God is not just going to put up with this arrogance. He's not just about drawing Ahaz back by grace, but saving his people as well. And so we get the famous Christmas verse, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. A sign that is not just for Ahaz about this one situation, but for humanity, for all situations. Because there is one who is coming that proves that God is who, really who he says he is and will do really what he says he will do. That no matter what threatens his people, even if it's the, 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 the biggest threat to his people, the, the sin sickness of our hearts, none of that is a match for the creator king. He gives Ahaz a chance to participate in that future by submitting himself to God, by by asking God for a sign, by believing God for a sign. But but Ahaz, in his false spirituality, refuses because he is more afraid of natural power than the supernatural one who is speaking to him. He believes in the natural counsel of military strategies rather than the wonderful counselor of peace and of healing. The question that God essentially poses in this scene with Ahaz is a question that we have to wrestle with this morning. Who do you trust? In other words, where is your hope found? The false promises of illegitimate gods or the true promises of the one true God? As I've already mentioned, Ahaz's pursuit of other counselors in the face of natural power is best revealed by his false spirituality. A a false spirituality that the Lord addresses actually in the next chapter. Before we get to Isaiah 9, there's Isaiah 8. 
And there's a reason I'm giving you all this context because it, it works its way up to explaining why in the world wonderful counselor sounds so good. Because in the chapter right before our text, Isaiah 8, this is what the Lord says to Isaiah. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says to me with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people, the, the, the counsel of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. In other words, do not take other people's perceptions of reality as true. Reality is only truly perceived in the light of the one we proclaim, the Lord Almighty. He is the one we fear because he is holy. He is the one that is the true judge. He is the one whose way of life actually matters. The one whose holiness determines our way of life. Isaiah responds in verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. No matter what happens, even when the Lord hides his face, Isaiah proclaims, my trust is in him. My, my, my hope is in him. I will wait in patient expectation, uh, in confident hope, in the Lord Almighty. But God is not done confronting the false spirituality of Ahaz. Verse 19 of that same chapter says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and, and spiritists to whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If, if anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Verse 21, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Isaiah's challenge to God's people in this passage is in the form of a question. Shouldn't people actually ask the God they say they believe in for help, for counsel? God's people ask for God's counsel. That's part of what it means to be God's people. God's people follow God's ways. That's part of what it means to be God's people instead of looking to others to tell them how to live. The text explains that life outside of these ways, outside of the word of God's counsel, is horrific. It's described in this text, the, the people are described who live outside of these ways as distressed, as, as hungry, as wandering in rage. It leads them to curse God and look around only to see a dark world painted with fear and distress. This is the life of those who pursue other counselors who pursue other voices to tell them who they are and why they matter, who are consumed with a false spirituality that tries to tell them how the world works, but only leaves them in the darkness of despair. And eventually they realize what Shakespeare wrote so many years ago, all that glitters is not gold. The darkness of the reign of Ahaz, an invasion that stopped not by Ahaz being a military genius, but by the grace of God, even despite Ahaz's defiance. These two things, they, they sit in the background as we approach Isaiah 9. The, the darkness of the world and the unfulfilled promises of the counselors we are so tempted to follow, they, they, they sit in the background as we approach Isaiah 9. These false counselors that we look to for safety and security, for power and significance, not only do they renege on their promises, but they also take away more than they give. They themselves are consumed with power and will use our hearts as their power source. 
They are ultimately the most dangerous and insecure places for our hearts. They rob us of true significance and they offer temporary and twisted meaning in return. And so out of Isaiah 7 and 8 this morning, we ask ourselves the question, how do we pursue other counselors? More specifically, which counselors do we pursue? Right? What, what voices are we listening to for our safety and our security? Those that tell us if we just moved into this particular safe neighborhood or had this particular stable job, it'll guarantee a secure life and there will be no suffering ever. Or, or the voices that we listen to for power that tell you the only way to, to, to get power is to take it from others, to climb the ladder at work and to make sure you don't care who you step on as you climb. What voices are we listening to for, for our significance, for our meaning? Those that tell you you won't matter until you've achieved these credentials or that lifestyle or enough of these uh, 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 startups or, or, that, or maybe even that, that you don't matter at all. That you have to make yourself matter to others. The darkness of pursuing other counselors gets deepest when we close our eyes and pretend that everything is okay. Everything is not okay. And that's why another king is coming. That's why we celebrate a different kingdom with a different king. Because this king communicates the light of hope. Look at our text this morning. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Remember what we read at the end of Isaiah 8? Those who follow their own counsel are left wandering in gloom, seeing nothing but gloom. And in judgment, Isaiah explains that in the past, he, being God, humbled the land of Zebulun by the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he's going to honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. How? Because the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It is not the hopelessness at the end of Isaiah 8, but the hope filled beginning of Isaiah 9 that tells us why we need a wonderful counselor. Because we need the light of hope. A light that, that cuts through the fear of natural power and cuts through false spirituality and exposes the darkness of sin in order to erase the darkness of sin with the hope of salvation. A, a, a light that isn't, if we're honest, always fun in games and sometimes feels more piercing than precious. It's piercing because it exposes what is Hidden by the dark, the brokenness not only of the world, but even in our own hearts. But this is hope, that his light does not just pierce, but performs the surgery we need to be healthy and to be whole. His light does not just expose us, but it exonerates us from the punishment we deserve for our sin. His light does not just shine, it brings us back to life. This is the work of the wonderful Counselor who shines the light of hope into the darkness of our lives and not only properly diagnoses the problem, but prescribes the only cure, the freedom of hope. Look at the text, verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, will, will, will not matter anymore. God promises to shatter what weighs his people down. The burdens and the oppression of the enemy of his people. Not just a foreign nation trying to invade, but an enemy foreign to God's creation, the sin and rebellion that we introduced into creation in Genesis 3. The light of hope in the God who saves is also the freedom of hope in the God who redeems. 
who frees those who are enslaved to sin and, and, and who pursue other counselors for what only God can give. The wonderful counselor uses the light of hope to properly diagnose, but he also uses the freedom of hope to properly treat us. The world tries to treat our sin sickness with, with expressive individualism. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. But the most dangerous thing we could do is to look inside first for our identity. Because apart from God, being true to who we are means authentically living lives trapped by sin. What we need most is the wonderful counselor to look into us and tell us who we are and free us from the sin that has enslaved us. To be true to who he made us to be and who he saves us to be. This is why it is such good news at Christmas that to us a child is born. To us, a son is given that, that this child will have the government on his shoulders and will be called Wonderful Counselor because he is the only one who can give us what we truly need, what we really want. We listen to all of these other voices to give us what only can be found in God. And, and, and here's what is, is so mind-boggling about this, that God still pursues us despite the insanity of our sin. I mean, we, we are going hard after all of these other counselors, all of these other voices, convinced that they have the life we so desperately need, and God is still coming after us and telling us, ask for a sign and I will give it to you. To show you that not only am I trustworthy, but I am the only one you actually need. This pursuit of us is actually given in the final words of our text. It says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It is the zeal of the Lord, his incredible love for us, his, his holy and righteous jealousy he has for the people he made to be aligned with him that will drive him to bring the salvation we so desperately need. Not because of how much we deserve it, but because of how much he wants to free us. Because when we are pursued by the wonderful counselor, Rather than going after all kinds of other counselors, we will see reality for what, he, what it is and see that he is the king that we need. The wonderful counselor who not only diagnoses our sin sickness properly, but treats our sin sickness completely. Because he truly knows us. John 2, 23-25 explains the diagnostic abilities of this wonderful counselor, this Jesus that we worship like this. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. They believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus didn't give in to the fame and the fandom of people who, who followed him for his signs because he knows just how twisted and bent out of shape our hearts are. But even when we pursue the right counselor, we pursue him for the wrong reasons. And those reasons cloud his true identity to us. We make Jesus in our own image rather than submitting to who he says he is, who he, we, he knows we are. He knows what was in each person and he loves us. And he came, he took on flesh. He approaches us in kindness with grace and mercy because he not only knows us, he also understands us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 describes this wonderful counselor's empathy like this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, the wonderful counselor not only knows that we are sin-sick, he knows what it's like to live in a sin-sick world as a human, in the flesh, 
suffering the brokenness of evil and enduring the power of temptation. He, he understands us. This, this wonderful counselor is wonderful precisely because of the lengths he has gone to save us. We no longer can look at his treatment plan and be like, God, you don't really get what we're struggling with down here. Like you're up there and you're God and, and nothing can touch you. And He understands us deeply. He understands what we need most because he became like us. He's not, it's not from a perspective on the outside looking in. As someone, he, he, he went all the way in and he is leading us out. The wonderful counselor knows us and can diagnose us. The wonderful counselor understands us, can prescribe an empathetic treatment plan, but the wonderful counselor did not stop there. He is also the one who saves us and actually accomplished our treatment plan for us. 1 Corinthians 1, we see this when Paul explains that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That the counselors we pursue, all the voices we might pursue, view the God who calls to us, the good news he calls us with, as foolish. Because it does not look like something that promises life. It looks restrictive to them. It looks demanding. It looks like bondage rather than freedom, which is why Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Everybody is, is trying to figure out some way to get out of what God is doing. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of the gospel is the power of God to those of us who really see reality for what it is. Painted darkly by sin, but the light is breaking through. The light of Christ penetrates the darkness at Christmas because the hope of God penetrated the world at Christmas in the incarnation of the creator king. The wonderful counselor entered the world diagnosing our problem, prescribing the solution, and making actual the cure. Today, on the second Sunday of Advent, then, I ask you a question of hope. Are you pursuing other counselors today? Or do you see how the wonderful counselor has pursued you? Has come to earth as a human for you? Has brought you hope in his life, his death, and his resurrection for you, for us? The hope of Christmas is only visible when we see the darkness of our pursuit of idols and false gods and anything that tries to convince us that we are anything other than who God says we are. His image bearers. Broken by sin, loved by our creator, and saved by the blood of Christ. The hope of Christmas shines brightest when we see the wonderful counselor, not just as someone nice that we, we, we talk to when we need him, but as someone necessary to save us from our sin sickness. The story of Christmas is not just one of promise in Isaiah 9. It is a story of promise fulfilled. And we'll end here. Luke 2 describes this promise fulfilled, this, this hope accomplished in a scene with a man named Simeon. We actually sang some of the words of his song earlier this morning. The scene unfolds like this. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting, notice the language of hope, for the consolation, the, the, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He was waiting, and God had told him that his hope was going to be fulfilled. So, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents, meaning Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
The scene ends with this. The, the, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. The light that God promised in Isaiah 9, the salvation that he guaranteed in Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor he assured his people was coming in Isaiah 9, had finally arrived, and Simeon knew it. His hope had been fulfilled. The hope of the world had entered his world, and as Simeon praises God, Mary and Joseph marvel. They, they wonder. They are jaw-dropping, eye-popping, impossible made possible, looking at the Jesus they called son that one day they would call Savior. The, the wonder of Christmas is that hope is alive, that even though the darkness is true, it is not the entire truth, and it's not even the essential truth. The hope of Christ is truer than the darkness of sin. And during Advent, we see and we remember and we feel the beginning of that reality. The foundation of our hope, the light of Christ. The light is not just present at the birth of Christ, but the light of hope shines brightly throughout the life of Christ, in the death of Christ, and by the resurrection of Christ. This is the upside down nature of Christ's kingdom. That the very thing which from a natural perspective snuffs out hope, death, is the very thing that God uses to produce hope. The death of Christ along with his resurrection is the treatment plan that the wonderful counselor not only prescribes but performs. This is not just the hope of Christmas but the hope of our lives, the hope of the world, the hope we remember at communion. Communion is an ordinance of the church family that proclaims the gospel to us in visible form. Now when you came in, you should have received these communion elements in a sealed cup. If you didn't, you can hop to the back and grab one. No one is going to shame you. Now, we're going to open and take each together as I lead us in communion, but I recognize that these cups can be pretty tricky. I know in the past I've been super weird about the crinkling, but I want us to take a minute right now and open both of the pieces of plastic just so that we're ready to go, get all the crinkling out of the way, so go ahead, because when we get to each part, we're going to take each together and no one's going to be left behind because of some weird plastic cover. And I'll wait till everybody sits down, gets their stuff. All right, familia. With the elements ready. All right, all right, all right. This is family. I like it. Get it done. You got it. We good to go? Everybody said amen? <laughs> I'm going to get weird about this now, too. All right. I want you to hear these words from the night that the Lord established communion as a practice for the new people he was creating. In Mark 14, through 25, this scene unfolds. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Every time we participate in communion, we reenact that evening with Jesus and his disciples. We, we re-enter the story and remind ourselves of what Jesus has done, giving his body to be broken, pouring out his blood for many, all to save and make a people for himself. Every time we participate in communion together, we, we preach the gospel to one another. Right? We say essentially, I, I, I need a Savior, and I know that you need a Savior. And we, we all here together, we all need a Savior. And we are here, each of us, 
Because we are bad enough that we need a Savior and loved enough that we actually have one. And Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so as we approach this table together, we approach in humility, confessing our sins, repenting of our rebellion, not because this is the way that we pay for a seat at the table, but because Jesus has already paid for our seat and this is how we participate at the table, in humble confession and free obedience to the one who has saved us. And so this morning, I want to invite all of us to enter that rhythm of repentance through the practice of confession. So as we take time to silently confess our sin to God before we eat and drink together, I also want to invite those here who, who may not believe or who, who have stepped away from God to, to humble yourselves before the Jesus who calls you, who calls to you, who calls you to salvation even now. You are not too far gone. We have all here confessed that we are all sinners. And my encouragement to you is that you would do the same. That, that you confess that he is Lord and that you are a sinner and that his death takes the place of your death as payment for sin. That you would confess and believe that Jesus has saved you from your sin. And then together with us, you would take and you would eat. And you would raise and you would drink, holding on to the hope of the gospel. Let's take a moment now to silently confess. To repent, founded upon the gospel and confident in our forgiveness in Christ. I'll give us some time to repent in silence. Wonderful counselor, this morning we have remembered your gospel in song, in prayer, in the preaching of your word. On the solid ground of your gospel, then, we have confessed our sins to you, all the ways in which we have disobeyed and gone our own way. We confess and we repent and we trust in your finished work on the cross and out of the tomb. Would you please keep working in us by your spirit to make us look more like you? Amen. Let's hold up the bread together. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the scene we just read in Mark when he says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Wonderful counselor this morning, we remember not just your broken body, but your blood poured out for us. Far more valuable than silver or gold, but without any defect or blemish, we have been saved by your precious blood. This morning we remember and we are grateful for your sacrifice. As we drink, would you remind us that you have made us family by your blood and it is your blood that binds us together. Amen. Let's raise the cup together. The Apostle Paul continues, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wonderful counselor, this morning we eat and we drink together 
these elements as a reminder of what you have done for us and to us by saving us. This morning, we live out in this, this small way and, and recommit ourselves to live out in a consistent way your gospel way of life. Your sacrifice to make us sons and daughters. Your death and resurrection to make us family. We remember and we recommit ourselves to you and to each other in this meal. We recommit ourselves to following your counsel and your wisdom and your way of life. Lord, would you in your um, love and in your wisdom and in your grace and in your kindness... Show us all the ways in which we pursue other counselors. Remind us in, in prayer, in your word, but also within this community as we talk to each other and preach the gospel to one another of all the ways in which we step off your path of life. Would you not only remind us, would you not only convict us, but would you bring us back? Would you restore us? Would you help us to realize that we have been pursued by the wonderful counselor? And you are not only trustworthy, you are the one who fills us with hope and joy and peace this Christmas. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>